All right, everyone, it's 12.30, so we're going to get started. We're going to honor everyone's time. We're in Joshua 16. For those watching or listening on the podcast, my voice is not being modulated. It's just I have a sore throat, and so you're going to hear a cough drop or two every now and then. Um, that, that goes for those of you here as well, too, but just to make sure that they know. We're in chapter 16, and we're in the part of Joshua where the land is being divided up amongst the tribes. These are the tribes of, the, of Israel that came out of Egypt as slaves. They have not had land. They have not had a permanent home for longer than America has been a country. So let that sink in. We're not talking about just your everyday experience here. This is people who have been slaves in a foreign land and a generation who's wandered and lived in the desert. They've not ever known a home in their lifetime, in their parents' lifetimes, in their parents' parents' lifetime, all the way back to the patriarchs, who also didn't know what it was like to own their own homeland. So this is a big deal, and that's why Joshua has multiple chapters about the tribes receiving their land. So if we get tempted to be gloss over or say, oh, well, this is boring, this doesn't have any application. No, this is very specific fulfillment of promise that God made to people. And that's what Scripture is, in large part, is a record of God keeping His promise to His people. And so each statement, each, each weird Hebrew name in these lists is like a stamp of approval of God. Yes, I keep my promise, I keep my promise, I keep my promise to His people who he had promised long ago, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, that they would receive, that they would come into this land, and their doing so would be the judgment on the peoples of Canaan. And remember, it's a two-pronged thing. It's not just God giving Israel land because he loves Israel. He is judging the Canaanite peoples, the specific peoples of Canaan, for their centuries of sinfulness and wickedness. And so the time has come for their judgment and it coincides because God is a perfect coincidence maker. It coincides perfectly with the time for Israel's liberation. And so the day of the Lord is a day of celebration for God's people and a day of lamentation for God's enemies. And that's a pattern that you'll see all through the prophets, all through Jesus' speaking of the end times, and even up through the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord is victory and celebration for God's people and vindication and, and, and um, restitution of those who have been wronged. And it's a time of suffering and grief and lamentation for those who have been on the opposite end, who have been the oppressors, who have been the enemies of God's people. And so even in Joshua, we see that as the people of Israel are moving into the land, those few Canaanites who recognize what's happening and who call on, even through, as we saw with the Gibeonites, even through deception, do anything they can in their pagan minds to get on the side of God's people, they're actually spared and incorporated into Israel. And we saw that again, most definitely with the story of Rahab. But there's hints and glimpses even throughout Joshua. <clears throat> so that was the first half of the book was Israel entering the land. Now we're in the part of the book, the land grant part, where after defeating the powers that control the broad area after the war is over or, or the, the main battle is won, there are some skirmishes that still have to be, uh, there's land that has to be taken and there's some skirmishes that have to follow. And so the past couple of weeks we've seen Caleb being involved in those. Again, the Gentile, the outsider, 
being brought into and through faith in the covenant God being brought into and given a part of Israel's land, even his daughter, as we saw last week. Well, this week, again, interspersed, there's going to be the same pattern. There's going to be a land <clears throat> description, then there's going to be a land granting, and then there's going to have something to do with a tribe and even the daughters within that tribe. And so Joshua is giving you these little echoes within the overall structure of an ancient Near East battle account followed by an ancient Near East land grant account. It's giving you these little whispers of how God does things within the realm of the ancient Near East that's different than the peoples of the ancient Near East were usually used to. So we read in chapter 16, we're coming, last week was the tribe of Judah, the, the, the preeminent tribe of Israel. Now we're going to read about the most numeric or one of the most numeric tribes of Israel, which is the tribe, the sons of Joseph. And that was actually two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph's had two sons, and they became the heads of these tribes. But collectively, Ephraim and Manasseh can be called the sons of Joseph, who was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And that's how they are in this chapter. Chapter 16, the allotment for Joseph. And here again, it's going to be like we talked about last week, like a Google Maps tour of the land, like a virtual reality tour of the land, this border, running, turning, going down, going up. It's laying out the perimeter of what's going to be the territory for the sons of Joseph on this side of the Jordan River. The allotment for Joseph began at the Jordan of Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, and went up from there through the desert into the hill country of Bethel. It went from Bethel, that is Luz, crossed over to the territory of the Archites at Adaroth, descended westward to the territory of the Jephthalites as far as the region of Lower Beth-Horon, and on to Gezer, ending at the sea. So this kind of zigzaggy line going across, giving the boundaries. So Manasseh and Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, received their inheritance. This was the territory of Ephraim, clan by clan. The boundary of their inheritance went from Adaroth Adar in the east to Upper Beth-Horon and continued to the sea. From Michmathath on the north, it curved eastward to Ta'anath Shiloh, passing by it to Genoa on the east. Then it went down from Genoa to Adaroth and Nara, touched Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. From Tapua, the border went west to Kana Ravine, ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the Ephraimites, clan by clan. It also included all the towns and villages that were set aside for the Ephraimites within the inheritance of the Manassites. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Now, this is a hint. This is going to be a pattern that continues throughout Joshua and into Judges, laying the groundwork for why the book of Judges was written. Israel was called to drive out the inhabitants of the land who would not turn to Yahweh, to rid Canaan of all of the vestiges. So the lands were conquered, and then the tribes and the clans were to go in and drive out any remnants. But they didn't always do that. Sometimes they got the, the fighting was done, the major battles were over, and they thought, eh, this is good enough. You know, we're going to, okay, they can stay in that town. We'll leave them alone. Even though God's specific command was, you are my instrument of judgment on this region, and you are to, you are to drive out the peoples. Now, was Israel doing this out of benevolence? No. No. They were doing this because fighting is hard. And battles are hard. And it's much easier to just go, we're okay. We've got what we got. This is good enough. When God had required total 
obedience. Total driving out and clearing the land of Canaanite influence because of the wickedness of the Canaanites because that wickedness was what he knew would ensnare Israel to themselves become Canaanites, which is exactly what happened throughout their history. And so this gives us a note among the sons of Joseph. Ephraim, they didn't dislodge. They settled. They allowed some of the Canaanites to remain, even though God had said drive out. Then chapter 17, which continues on because we're still in the sons of Joseph. This was the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh as Joseph's firstborn. That is for Machir, Manasseh's firstborn. Machir was the ancestor of the Gileadites who had received Gilead and Bashan because the Machirites were great soldiers. So this allotment was for the rest of the people of Manasseh. The, son, the clans of Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, Shemida. These are the other male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. So this is how it worked structurally. You had the tribes of Israel, and they were named after the patriarchs of each tribe, like the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Manasseh. Within that, then, the descendants, the firstborn of those tribal heads, would be the heads of the clans. So now you, the, the next level down are the clans. So you would have a clan that you belong to in the tribe that you belong to, among the people of Israel, like these concentric rings of identity. And so the land then was divvied up. Okay, this whole area is the area of Manasseh. But now within Manasseh, the sons of Machir, they've already had their allotment over here in Bashan on the Transjordan, if you remember from a few weeks ago. So now we're going to deal with the other five sons, uh, uh, clans rather, in that tribe. So this is divvying up the rest of the lands of Manasseh which is part of the sons of Joseph. We'll see what's the importance of it in just a minute. So it, it divides it up. These are the other male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh. So you see how they trace their genealogy all the way back. So this, this descendant in the clan named Zelophehad had no sons, only daughters. And their names, again, and we've met these daughters before. We met them in the book of Numbers. Their names were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They went to Eleazar the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So Joshua gave them inheritance along with the brothers of their father according to the Lord's command. So Manasseh's share consisted of ten tracts of land besides Gilead and Bashan east of the Jordan because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons. The lands of Gilead belonged to the rest of the descendants of Manasseh. Now we read about them two years ago. A lot of you weren't here for that. Numbers 27, Numbers 36. You can go back and check the podcast or the video. We looked at this request by the daughters of Zelophehad. The way it would work was land stayed within the family. And it was passed down patrilineally. So from father to son, father to son, father to son. Well, we got to the case where a father didn't have any sons. And so under other ancient Near East law, the land would revert to one of the brothers. But the daughters were like, hey, whoa, just because our dad didn't have sons, that, that, that means this is the end of his line? No, let it go through us. Let us have the land. And Moses asked God, and God said, yeah, give it to him. This is astounding in the ancient Near East, that, that five women not only would be named in Scripture, this is the third time they've been named, all five of them, but also they, again, like we saw last week with Caleb's daughter, Aksa, they went 
They made the request. They were given the request. There's, there's the initiative. There's, there's, the, 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 there's not remaining silent, not remaining subservient or submissive, but actually these women standing up and saying, hey, this is not right. Remember, you promised us land. God told Moses and Moses and Joshua, give us land. And so they are speaking up. They're not, there's, they're not being demure. They're not being culturally appropriate. And yet, God gives them, they're told, no, yes, this is their land. This is to go to them. So again, can you build a full-fledged theology of feminist reactions off of No, not at all. We're not there. But in the context of the ancient Near East, this is monumental. Just like last week was with Aksa and with her request. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible, does not have any problem with women asserting covenant rights. When it's a matter of what's covenant right, what's, what's just, and what's fair, there's nothing in the Hebrew Bible that rebukes women and says, oh, hush, 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 let the menfolk do that. And so, this is one case in which they speak up, and rightly so, and they're rewarded and given their land along with their brothers. So, therefore, verse 7, the territory of Manasseh, so now it's going to, after it's, this has been settled, and that's the third specific land grant uh, narrative in this whole book, it goes on to say, give us a little um, tour of the boundary. The territory of Manasseh extended from Asher to Mithmahath to she- east of Shechem. The boundary ran southward from there to include the people living in, in Tapua. Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua itself on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the Ephraimites. Now this is where it gets a little weird. In the ancient Near East, when their lands were divvied up, there would be a cases sometimes where your boundary would be to a certain part. And in a treaty, it'd be like, okay, from the big ravine to the river to the mountain is the land of so-and-so. But there would be urban centers, or not urban, that's too much of a word, but um, dwelling places outside of that land that may also belong to you as well. So you could have a land be like, you know, North Carolina, but if there was a, a city or something just over the border in South Carolina that was still recognized as North Carolina, you know, something like that. Okay, it's, we actually, in, um, there's something like that in, is it Minnesota or Michigan? Minnesota. Minnesota, there's northwest corner, if you look, on a map, Minnesota, and then there's this little tiny thing that's just clearly part of Canada, like not even attached, and that's Minnesota. It's called the northwest corner, I believe, and it's Minnesota territory. And there's all kinds of little things like this geographically in American history, but also in world history as well, where you'll have territory, but then you'll also have some cities or some things beyond that territory that also count as yours. So that's how it worked in Israel. The boundaries were, were they weren't, it's not like contractors, or no, what are they called? Surveyors. It's not like surveyors were out there measuring, you know, everything precisely. These were general boundaries, and they were somewhat fluid. Because Israel wasn't these airtight, sealed containment of these different tribes. They were the people of Israel. So they had general tribal areas, but there was some fluidity. There was some movement between the tribes. There was some land that would be taken. There was some land that would be lost. The tribe of Dan, they end up losing some of their land. That's why they're not even mentioned in later tribal lists. I mean, there's, you, the more you look at it, it's not as neat and tidy as we want it to be. But guess what? Neither are people. Anytime you have people and boundaries and borders and family and land, you're going to have these kinds of issues, these kinds of squabbling. That's what we see in Israel's history. That's part of how we know this, this is 
based in history. If you're making up a neat, tidy, mythic account, you don't put this kind of stuff in it. So what we're reading, as sloppy as it is at times, that's a good indication that we're reading part of Israel's actual history, not something made up centuries later, as some scholars would say. So it goes on, and then it says... uh, where the towns belong, where do we stop? Verse 9. Then the boundary continued to Kikana Ravine. There were towns belonging to Ephraim lying among the towns of Manasseh, but the boundary of Manasseh was the northern side of the ravine and ended at the sea. On the south, the land belonged to Ephraim on the north to Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached the sea and bordered Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. Within Issachar and Asher, Manasseh also had Bethshan. That's one of their cities, Iblium, and the people of Dor, Endor, Taanach, and Megiddo. That's Megiddo. That's actually Armageddon. That's where the mountain of Megiddo is where Armageddon is said to have happened. That's the Revelation study. Together with their surrounding settlements, the third in the list of Naphoth. Here it is. Verse 12. Yet the Manassites, this is just like Ephraim in the last chapter, Manassites were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when Israelites grew stronger, and that was years and years later, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Yet again, we're getting the foreshadowing of what's going to be Israel's downfall in the book of Judges over and over again. Israel, the, the, the phrasing there is laughable. It's, they, they weren't able to occupy these towns. They had destroyed the armies. They had destroyed the ba- they had won the battle. They had beaten the armies. But there were these little pockets, and it says the people were determined to stay there, and so the Manassites weren't able to drive them out, which is laughable after the whole entire first half of the book of Joshua that we've read. Because God has promised, if you walk with me in covenant obedience, I go before you, I win your battles, you will drive them out. And so this is not a case of, well, they just tried and they couldn't. This is a case of, well, they looked and thought, eh, let's not even try. They're stubborn. We've got enough. We'll just resign them to the pockets. And theologians have seen metaphors for this all throughout the church ages. You know, people that read these as, as um, symbolic or theological accounts, they've, they've talked about how the Canaanites represent sin that we leave dwelling among us. And so God gives us freedom from sin in Christ. But then if we leave little pockets of rebellion or little pockets or little areas of sin in our life, you know, like, yeah, I'm saved, Lord. I'm going, I'm getting baptized. I'm inviting all my friends to see it. I'm celebrating. It's a great day. But I'm still, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you baptize everything except my wallet. Everything except my checkbook you can have. Everything except my thought life you can have. Everything except my, you know, like people have seen in that. And there's, I think there's something to that. I, I, I don't think you can say that's what this text is teaching primarily. But I think you can see a principle within this historical account that lends itself to that spiritual truth, which is if you leave pockets of stuff that God has told you to remove, and if you leave them there, they will fester and spiral into sinfulness. They will fester and spiral into destruction. And that's what we see happen in Israel's history. They leave these little pockets of Canaanites, and those Canaanites become thorns in their side and lead them to idolatry, lead them away from the worshiping of God, which is exactly what God had told them not to do. So then it ends with a a weird little account. This is the fourth land-grant narrative. 
And this one's kind of interesting. Verse 14, so two chapters now, the sons of Joseph have been given their land. And the land that they've been given, if you look on a map, is pretty much bigger than the rest of all the land, except maybe Judah. I mean, Judah's big, but Ephraim and Manasseh together are huge. And they're on both sides of the Jordan in terms of their land. But the Manassites, they still have a complaint. Verse 14, the people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We're a numerous people and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. Joshua says, if you're so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest, clear the land for yourselves. They're in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephites. In other words, this is land in their territory that they should be taking. And they're saying, what we've got is too small. And Joshua's like, well, if you're big enough, go clear the land that's been given to you. And so then the people of Joseph replied, verse 16, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots, both those in Bethshan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. So now they're, they're back to the ways of their ancestors. Like, oh, the Canaanites are too big for us. They're too strong for us. They have iron chariots. What did God do last time chariots chased His people? He drowned them in the sea. These are the people, they're not giving valid reasons. They're giving excuses. They're wanting Joshua to do something, to give them, give us, a, give us more land instead of what we already have that's going to require us to do some work to clear it out. That's been given to us, but there's scary people there, and it's going to take work, and just, they're whining. They're whining. And I love Joshua's response. It's almost like Joshua patting them on the head. Verse 17, but Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you're numerous and very powerful. You will not only have one allotment, but the forest hill country as well. Clear it and these limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they're strong, you can drive them out. This is Joshua with a little bit of tough love saying, hey, go do what you've been given. You're bragging about how much you've been blessed, and they're, they're saying we've been blessed so numerously so we deserve more land. And Joshua's like, okay, go take it. It's already been given to you. It's already been deeded to you by God Himself. Yes, it's forest land instead of pasture land. Yes, you're going to have to clear out the land in order to graze it. Yes, you're going to have to do some work. Yeah, there's some stubborn Rephaites and Perizzites there. But hey, guess what? We were called by God to drive out the Perizzites and the Rephaites and the Hizzites and the... You know, like that's our calling here. So go finish what God has already started and live out your calling. And there's a lot to that in just these two chapters in, in land grant chapters, right? That you, your eyes gloss over when you read the weird Hebrew names because they don't have any meaning to you. But aside from the land grant, there's some pretty interesting theology going on here. Is the people were complaining, we don't have enough, and Joshua is saying, yeah, you do. You have more than enough. But it's not being given to you <laughs> on a silver platter, which I literally have before me. It's not handed to you that way. You're going to have to do what we've always had to do as God's people. You're going to have to go in faith, trusting that if you're doing what God's called you to do, which is what Joshua's telling them to do, that God's got your back. Is it scary? Yep. Is it hard? Absolutely. 
I mean, have you ever tried clearing forested land without a backhoe or a bulldozer? Right? This is pre-industrial. Like, it's hard work. It's going to take a lot. So, yes, it would be easier if we could just have some more pasture land. But he's saying, no, you're going to have to make the pasture land. Now, over the next couple of centuries, they would actually do this. There's, there, if you go to Israel today, all the mountain hill country, it's all terraced. And that's from around this time period of them doing that, going in and clearing out these forested hills and making terraced fields in them. So whenever you read in the Old Testament about a field, you know, don't think of like a big field like we think of today with combines and hay bales. Think of like a terraced hillside and each little plot of that is a field. And that's where you'd plant your crops because everything was done by hand. That's what he's telling them to do. That's what the sons of Joseph are being urged to do. So I love how it ends because Joshua doesn't rebuke him. He does, he could have, but he recognizes like, mm, no, sometimes you just need to remind them of who they are and what they're called to do. And who they are are God's people. And what they're called to do is what God has been doing for the past 400 and something years. So he's putting them in the context and he's reassuring them. And as a leader, you know, there's sometimes, sometimes your kid needs a smack on the bottom and sometimes they need a gentle push. Sometimes they need reassurance. Sometimes they need a smack. And a good leader knows when which is appropriate for which child. And in this case, they get a gentle like, hey, no, I'm not going to entertain your whining. Go do it. And so anyway, we're going to wrap up. Um, next week we're going to dive back in we're going to look at the the divvying up of the other tribes and we're coming towards the end of the book of Joshua usually we've been every book has been like a year long journey well Joshua is a shorter book than our previous ones so we're going to be finishing up over the summer and then there's going to be a break time to be determined still haven't figured that out yet and then we'll launch into judges in the later part of the year but for now we have to go so thank you for bearing with my voice Look through these books here. Take some with you. If it looks interesting, if it looks like something you or somebody you know would be interested in, I don't want to cart off a bunch of books again. So you take them and let's continue and spread the legacy of our dear friend McLean uh, and his generosity. Um, and there's desserts and salad if you want some of that. So have a great week.